back to the Public Problems Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Bullock. This will be the last conversation for Season 2. In an open and honest conversation, we discuss themes from the school-to-prison pipeline to solitary confinement to the continuing status of felons once they leave prison, the idea of colorblindness, and the evidence that shows the way in which these policies have been implemented have had disparate impact on communities both of poverty and communities of color. In this episode, we discuss many of the issues that are also addressed in Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. Um, So I'd like to highlight that at the beginning of this episode. A lot of the evidence comes from that book, um, among other sources, Um, but you'll notice some corollaries in the conversation with the themes of that book. Um, And when the most straightforward interpretation of the evidence um, that you're going to hear today is given, I think the conclusions are a bit troubling. A brief reminder before we uh, begin the episode, there will be one more concluding episode for season two where I'll recap some of the the themes from this season. Also, the new podcast series that I announced in the previous episode called Solving Public Problems, The Fourth Industrial Revolution is still planning on uh, releasing the first episode on August 15th which will be an introduction episode to that series. Um, there will be a companion virtual cra- classroom to that podcast series where you can access additional materials on the topic and have a conversation with other listeners. The link to the registration for this course is in the description of this podcast episode and will be on our Facebook page as well. I hope you find this conversation interesting and enjoyable. Um, I really enjoyed it and found it to be informative, open, and honest, and, uh, and quite interesting. So... Thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome back. Um, we're doing another episode of Public Problems today. I am with uh, five. Yes, there's five of you. Five Bush School students today. And we're going to have a 45-minute to hour-long conversation about what was what we're broadly calling the school to prison pipeline. Um, this course was conducted in the spring of 2018 um, with the students around the table, and we really delved into uh, issues of the school to prison pipeline, also what the U.S. prison system is like and the challenges uh, with it and the challenges it presents to people while they're in prison, but also with reintegration um, into society. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, and two, uh, and also uh, we're going to address the racial elements of this. After reading a couple of the books for class and the documentaries that we watched, uh, we read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, um, a book on the school to prison pipeline, several documentaries on these topics, and so we're also going to walk right into the issues of racial caste that Michelle Alexander brings up and some of the uh, racial undertones and sometimes overt tones that um, that permeate these issues. Um, so that's kind of the background where we're coming from. Um, I'm going to let the students uh, and the those that have spent the semester learning about this introduce themselves. And then from there, I'm going to let each of them, after we do the intros, talk a little bit about why they were interested in this class and interested in these topics. And then from there, we'll start talking a little bit about the school to prison pipeline 
Um, it's going to be, as usual with these conversations, more of a conversation than an interview. And we're going to try to have just a nice flowing discussion, which is what we've been doing all semester, although not recorded. Um, so with that, uh, to my left, uh, I'll let everyone one by one do their intros. Howdy. Um, my name is Darren Dubose. I'm a second year um, here at the Bush School. All right. Howdy. I'm Ashton Jones. I'm a second year at the Bush School. Howdy. My name is Muriel Pinnell, and I'm a fresh year here at the Bush School. Hello. My name is Ashley Turnage. I am a second year also at the Bush School. Hello. What is this? Don't you know you have to go with howdy, Ashley? <laughs> <laughs> uh, howdy, I suppose. My name is Eric Taylor. I am a second year here at the Bush School as well. All right. Thanks, everyone. So I'd like to start with why you were interested in doing this independent study um, over and above all of us getting to hang out and talk about these issues. This to these topics in particular, I think, are, um, are really interesting and really affect a lot of your communities as well. And so maybe talk a little bit about, we don't have to do it in the same order, but if people will just kind of jump in. Why were you interested in this and having a whole semester on this particular topic? I can start if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead, Ashley. So for me, I was very interested in this topic because it combines two things that I really love, which are education as well as criminal justice. So for me to study the school-to-prison pipeline is the best of both worlds. Um, and I thought it was a very good complement to my studies here at the Bush School because a lot of it deals with policies and procedures and government entities that carry these things out. Um, so it was a very comprehensive way for me to study something that I like, but also gaining additional skills as of how to like analyze policy and things of that nature. Excellent. Uh, I can go. Uh, the topics were very personal for me. I've had uh, family members uh, dealing with mass incarceration uh, intergenerationally, even so in my immediate family. And uh, as far as the school to prison pipeline, I've dealt with the some of the things that we've looked at, such as underperforming schools and uh, discriminatory policies that only target certain student groups. I've dealt with that, and that's the education that I came through. So to be able to take a critical lens at that and get into some of the literature about it and get more than just, oh, I've experienced that, it was a, it's a big opportunity. So that's the biggest reason I was interested in the subject. It was one of the things that I learned through this class was the degree to which, you know, for several of you around the table, this is this hits really close to home, either in your immediate family or in your communities have had people tangled up in either uh, underperforming schools that sort of feed people into the prison system um, or family members that have been caught up in the war on drugs or mass incarceration and it's really had a, a large impact on, on your community. How about the rest of you? Sure, I can jump in. Um, for me, um, serving as a past educator before, um, I think this literature in this class was um, provided a framework because I'm thinking about what well, I am uh, entering back as an educator, but provided a framework of how do I be a better educator um, dealing with all of these different scenarios. And so I think in general, um, 
being a part of an underperforming school um, and entering in, I think in general, um, this dilemma that we're faced with affects our communities. And so I think in general, um, our teachers, our educators, and the people around it should be aware of what has caused um, a lot of harm to particular people of color. So I was very interested in the topic, uh, very interested in how do we solve this problem. I think in this conversation, it has always um, reflected on that question. And so, um, a very interesting model. Um, so, cool. Yeah, uh, my undergrad was in criminal justice, so I love this stuff, and I was interested in this topic because um, I wasn't—I was aware of everything that's happening, such as the school-to-prison pipeline and the new Jim Crow, but I wasn't aware of the deep-rooted issues that we still face today. So, I wanted to make sure that I was polished on these issues because I'm going to be working in the public service field. So, I want to make sure that when I interact with um, government officials and people in the education sector that I can speak to them about these issues. And uh, for me, it was just an opportunity to learn. Um, you know, these were topics or subjects that we've discussed before, whether it was within my community or within my home, with my family, because it does affect uh, uh, a lot of people of color in particular, um, you know, us and our backgrounds and the things that uh, we've, we've grown up to uh, now believe and understand. But it was an opportunity to really uh, get down to understand what the deep-rooted issue is and um, to be able to explore it, to be able to find solutions, to be able to see uh, what can we do as future leaders of this, uh, this country, as future leaders in the public uh, service realm, to be able to um, fix these issues and to hopefully alleviate these problems from ever happening again. Excellent. Okay, so as part of that, uh, the team here threw out a number of terms that someone listening to this may or may not be familiar with. And so terms like mass incarceration, school to prison pipeline, or on drugs, um, and in particular how it's affecting communities of color. So all these things might not immediately be clear to a listener as how they're all tied together. So let's start with the school to prison pipeline. And could someone tell me just in broad, you know, not technical terms, but in broad strokes, what do you what do we mean when we say school to prison pipeline? I'll take a stab at it if that's okay with everyone. Yeah, right but feel free to jump in. <laughs> um, so the school to prison pipeline broadly refers to the way in which we handle school age children with disciplinary matters and how a lot of the policies such as zero tolerance, meaning um, we automatically lead to suspensions or expulsion of students. The school to prison pipeline basically re uh, refers to how that in turn puts a, funnels a lot of students directly from suspensions, expulsions, into the prison system. And so zero tolerance being the idea that there are some some offenses that which the students don't get a second chance. Correct. And this can be even as early as elementary and middle school. Mm -hmm. And so students then uh, face some type of uh, some type of punishment and um, from an early age. And then one thing I know we talked about with the school to prison pipeline is those children also get labeled mm -hmm. um, as troublemakers. And so, and part of the problem here with this isn't that there are disciplinary actions in place, it's that they aren't uh, administered evenly across groups of students. And so somebody maybe could tell me a little bit more about why we were particularly concerned about the school to prison pipeline as part of the war on drugs. I mean, this really hits home in poor communities and communities of color in particular. Is that, is that correct? Yes. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, the zero tolerance policy first began because it was to protect students from guns, to protect 
uh, students from ill behavior being in a, an environment where they felt like they couldn't learn. However, it commonly affected people of color. Um, you would see students who were of color that would be suspended more than their other uh, counterparts who were not of the same race or not of the same uh, skin color. And so it, it, it seemed as if it was an attack on these particular communities because it wasn't that there was necess necessarily a, a behavioral issue, but uh, I think it was an issue with the classroom and, and how we communicate and deal with discipline. Um, and, and this can go on to talk about also the mass incarceration rates, which I'm sure we'll get into later, but um, it just seemed like here we are supposed to be teaching these children how to learn, but yet we're imprisoning them and, and putting them in environments where they no longer have that opportunity. Whereas education is supposed to be a civil rights law, a civil rights uh, um, uh, uh, part of this, this, these students being able to be educated and being able to be infiltrated into a society where they'll have to ultimately be able to survive. But if you're in a, a school where teachers believe just because you didn't bring a pencil or just because you didn't have the proper supplies, but at home they're dealing with real life issues, it makes it hard for you to be able to uh, sustain a society of people who ultimately um, deserve to be treated the same way as their other uh, peers. I think you hit on a couple of things that I want to touch on just real quick and then we can keep moving to at least give broad pictures of some of these other concepts. But just as a history note, we learned this semester that these zero tolerance policies, which you mentioned, were originally designed for uh, for bringing weapons to school, but they have over time had some kind of uh, creep, for lack of better words. They've been applied in wider contexts than just bringing weapons to school, and so the the types of um, the types of things, the types of acts that can then be punished with zero tolerance is is much wider. And there's not a lot of enforced restrictions on this throughout the. The local school districts throughout throughout the country and so that's one piece of this and the second piece has left me so i'm not going to be able to remember what the second piece of this was um so we got the school to prison pipeline and to kind of recap it's this idea that lots of schools throughout the country are failing to provide essentially the basic education services and are using tools like zero tolerance disciplinary strategies that essentially push students out of the school system. And there's a lot of empirical evidence for this as well. Right, and I think part of the issue is because some schools just don't have the resources. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, not only are we dealing with children uh, or kids who uh, have the, the racial minority piece, but also kids who are uh, who have disabilities. Mm -hmm. And um, not every school has the resources, like I said, or um, the, the tools in order to be able to supply what these particular students need. and. And ultimately, that's that's just a part of the issue. And then I just want to add to that um, some of the literature that we studied this semester. It kind of um, showed us more of what these potty, um, policies embody. So not only is it things um, from what it was intended to do, such as if a student brings a weapon or a gun to school, you know, like expel them or suspend them, but they also include things such as drug students if they bring drugs to school, even things such as tobacco. So we really just need to be careful when we say the term just to make sure that we realize all that it encompassed because I don't 
want people to think like, oh yeah, we should have zero tolerance. If someone brings a gun to school, that's an automatic no. I want you to also be aware that, you know, this is very, you know, inclusive of many things that students or kids just do. And I hate to say it just as part of being a kid, but some of these things we need to be really mindful of. Do we want that punishment to be them being expelled for bringing a cigarette to school, you know? Yeah, and I think uh, Ashway's point there that with number with a lot of these issues that we're going to be talking about today, that the saying is the devil's in the details, right? No one's saying that children who pose a serious threat to other children shouldn't receive some type of important or a consequential uh, disciplinary action. But in what cases, and is that is that implemented in a way that is fair or or just? And we'll, and we'll talk on this too as we talk about mass incarceration as we talk about the U.S. prison system and the war on drugs, these things at the outset, as we look at them, you know, they can make some type of reasonable sense, right? It makes sense that we want to have some type of discipline in schools that keep our children safe. That's a really good starting point. But then the way in which this is administered or the way in which this is implemented turns out to be maybe not fair and just across all types of students. Sure. And I think that leads to a lifelong impact when students um, who um, have faced zero tolerance policies, they end up into all of this trickle down effect with mass incarceration. And so I think in general, we, we just have to be very reflective on what type of policies work for our different students in our schools, the type of policies that our educators can administrate, because I don't think it's, it should be a system of a one size fit all. It should be how do we um, in general provide those solutions just for our students in general. I think that's a nice uh, segue into mass incarceration. And so mass incarceration has done some of this one-size-fits-all sentencing as well, mandatory minimums, for example. So let's move just to kind of lay out the broad picture. Let's talk a little bit about mass incarceration. So what's the basic idea behind mass incarceration in the United States? Well, we can talk about some of the historical origins of mass incarceration. It was uh, instituted near after uh, the end of the Civil War. That is uh, when it began. You saw that the 13th Amendment uh, created emancipation, freed slaves, however, left a loophole that slavery was an acceptable punishment for, uh, for a criminal offense. So at that point, we would see loitering <clears throat> Excuse me. We would see loitering as a as an offense to get newly freed slaves back into uh, servitude and back. They would cl- they would quickly rent them from the prisons that they had at the time back onto uh, former plantation owners' land. So that was a very early point. Skipping ahead quite a bit to the institution of the war on drugs, which is uh, just at a certain point, a political campaign. And it was another form of colorblind justice. It had the thought that there was a counterculture, there was hippies and everything and that were against the good old fashioned American way. And it was an attack on all of those groups. So it wasn't just racialized. However, the execution of the law was very racialized. We see that uh, African-American men may constitute about 6% of the general population, and they constitute 40% of the prison population. So we just see an overrepresentation of minorities 
in our prison systems. And that's what mass incarceration is because it happened rampantly and all over. And we spoke of mandatory minimums in the 90s. They tried to take on uh, the actual drug dealers, the actual suppliers, but they gave harsher sentences to common street dealers and then possession just could equal a lifelong sentence for possessing a, a drug and users of this drug. So it's very systemic. They've been at it for a long time, evolving it for a long time, but it's very uh, established. And I think the 13th Amendment is a nice um, kind of point to hit home. And there's a, uh, as we're recording this in 2018, I think it was within the last two years or so, the 13th documentary on Netflix sort of lays these things out in detail after detail after detail, which that documentary was based on the book we read this semester, which was the new Jim Crow in part. Um, and it lays out how after the passage of 13th Amendment, there were these implementation tools used by for, uh, law enforcement agencies um, to make it really easy to have African-Americans put back into prison for things as simple as loitering. Or what we talked about in this class was not having a job, right? Just unemployment could cause you to have to be put into jail, right? And at a time when there were clearly in uh, post-Civil War era, there wasn't a lot of employment opportunities for blacks in the South, for example, or even in the North. Um, but this really ramped up in, you mentioned the war on drugs, the, the mass incarceration really ramped up in the U.S. to a whole nother degree starting in about the late 70s and 80s, right? And so, and this was a function predominantly of uh, President Nixon really driving home the war on drugs. And so the idea sounds, um, uh, I think on its face, sounds sounds reasonable. There was a slight uptick uh, in some types of drug usage at that time, um, mostly crack cocaine. Um, and there was some slight, if I remember correctly, upticks in, in violent crimes, but only slight upticks. And so the response from President Nixon was to, uh, in part really with the Southern strategy, was to play these things up play that um, drugs were running rampant, crime was running rampant, and so we needed law and order. Even though these were real minor ticks up and drug usage overall was not was not going up with any with uh, with any large percentage amount. And the way in which it was uh, presented politically had very clear racial overtones. And so and then what happened in practice was well, essentially what amount, amounted to uh, police states in these poor communities and in these poor communities of color with all types of different strategies for fighting this war, which we can, which we will get on, we'll get into more detail as we kind of begin this discussion, but it's what's laid out in the documentary 13th. It's what's laid out in Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow. There was systematic attempts to not just target drugs, but really targeting drugs and communities of color. And one startling piece of evidence uh, for that, uh, for me, was um, the evidence that is whites and blacks, for example, don't use drugs in any different real amounts. They use drugs at pretty similar levels. But to your point, uh, African-American men make up was it 40% of the prison population um, with the vast, uh, with a majority of them being related to drug crimes, um, while white men use drugs at essentially the similar levels. 
So it becomes really hard to look at this and not see a racial element when the people committing a, a crime, I suppose, uh, using drugs that are illegal or having them on their person, there isn't a lot of differentiation by race, but when we look at who's prosecuted and who actually serves time for this, there are very, very clear racial dynamics to this. And um, also um, uh, income dynamics. There's also a big piece that's not, it is very racialized, but also um, poverty um, is the other piece of this that plays into this. And I just want to kind of set the stage and um, just present some uh, facts and figures so that our audience can kind of capture some of this. So we're talking about the context of mass incarceration. So I think it's important to note what the U.S. prison population has done in recent years. Um, so as Dr. Bullock stated, we saw a spike in like the 70s, 80s, and 90s to where we now have a prison population that's um, peaking at right at about 2.5 million, which places us as um, for a country or as a nation to have the largest um, imprisonment rate. And that's not taking into account individuals that may be on probation or, you know, other forms of monitoring and things of that nature. And then from the racial lens, um, according to the sentencing project, which is a very well-known um, website or reference for individuals in the criminal justice realm, um, as well as Michelle Alexander, her, her book notes that one in three black men will be incarcerated during their lifetimes. Um, and just to put this fact in comparison, that figure is only one in 17 for their white counterparts. So this does appear to be an issue that's heavily you know, impacting communities of color. Um, additionally, with one in six Latino men go going to be incarcerated in their lives as well. Um, and then also we touched on the war on drugs, um, which also some people refer to the crack to cocaine disparity that took place during that time. It's important to note the type of sentences that were passed down for these very similar drug uses. Um, so crack, which is a drug that's used predominantly in the black community, for the same amount um, for one gram of that drug, an individual that had 100 grams of cocaine, which is the drug of choice in most white communities, they, those individuals would receive the same amount of sentencing. So you have this 100 to 1, you know, crack to cocaine disparity, which just is mind blowing, right? When you look at who it impacts and things of that nature. So I just wanted to kind of set that tone for our audience, just so you can kind of know some of the figures and data that support this issue of mass incarceration. I think the, the, the numbers that we covered in this class, even knowing that it was an issue were what really stuck with me. It's not that there are slight disparities across these different communities. The disparities are dramatic um, and they're dramatic across education, across um, uh, and across uh, incarceration. Um, and another piece of this to kind of talk a little bit about is uh, after leaving the, uh, the prison system, what these people face. And so this is part of the mass incarceration problem and part of the war on drugs problem, but it's a little bit different. So I wanna, I wanna hit on that too. And it's this idea that even once people have served their time, you know, we, we, whether, I think we can have disagreements or discussions about what is the appropriate uh, sentencing for someone who has marijuana on their person or cocaine on their person. And one of the things we've talked about in this class too is what's an appropriate sentence for someone selling those drugs. Uh, so that's one piece of this um, that people in society might um, disagree about, but is, is is only one piece of this. The other piece is once people leave their, once people serve their time, 
They've paid their debt to society. It turns out that across lots of um, types of crimes, you don't get to fully reintegrate into society. And so in particular for felons. So maybe someone could tell me a little bit about the challenges of reintegration. After someone's paid their debt to society, after they've served their time, we still kind of keep a weight on their back and don't let them reintegrate into, into society. What, what are some of the pieces of that? Um, I can go. I think some of the pieces are that there's still, they still have this label on them that they're a felon and that they're still like a bad person, even though they've served their time and they paid their debt. They come back into society and they still can't find a job because they have this label on them. They can't find a place to live unless they have family members to support them. They can't get government assistance because they have this label on them. So this label of being a felon is just something that they can never get rid of. So then once they realize that, you know, they're, they get down and out on themselves. And once they realize that maybe, you know, maybe it is better in prison, maybe I should go back. Maybe, uh, maybe, you know, there's no hope for me out into society unless they have like somebody that's helping them extremely. But a lot of the times they're just alone and they only have their family, but a lot of the times their family is in these um, underserved areas that can't really help them much. So then they, you know, reintegrate, then they become a person that goes back into the prison population because, you know, they don't have other choices other than to commit another crime. So the idea there is that once felons leave prison because of their felon status, they don't have access to lots of resources, uh, government resources that they would normally have access to. And they have to declare that on employment application forms in most states. Um, and so that disqualifies them from lots of jobs. And so when you say they don't have other choices, what you're really kind of saying is that because of all these barriers, they don't have any real practical choices. Getting a job to pay their basic living expenses often just isn't a real actual choice for them. And so what they often end up doing is engaging in an illegal activity such as selling drugs or to make a living. To make a living. There's no other there's not another <laughs> practical, realistic way for them to provide for their family. And I want us to be honest and call it what it is. I think it's a way of America just saying, if you're labeled a felon, we want you back a part of the system. I mean, point blank period, not having access to all of the many services that Ashton just men mentioned, but also um, not being able to vote, not being able to sit on a jury, not being able to do the common American things. And so I think in general, once these drug related crimes are labeled felons, they don't have access to the common things that we enjoy on a daily basis. So I think that is very important to note because we have left um, and labeled these people as second class citizens um, of not even enjoying um, what we consider um, the American dream. And for, oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> but uh, just to add to Ashton and uh, Darren's point, if, if we are going to call it what it is, it's modern day slavery. I mean, we're we're taking citizens rights. We're taking their rights to education, their right to vote, their right to be able to acquire the things that as we, you know, as American citizens have, but because we didn't create a, or we didn't act on a criminal um, um, case or we weren't a part of some type of criminal action, um, we still have our rights. But for those who have, we're stripping them away. 
And so it, it, the blame can go so many ways. We can blame it on life on parole. We can blame it on the fact that it's the system that's keeping um, people of color from being able to be infiltrated and, and to subject themselves back into society. We can blame it on, on crack and, and cocaine and the reason why, uh, for some reason, those rates are higher within our communities than they are in our counterparts. We can blame it on the fact that the uh, police have had rights over a number of years to be able to come and, and frisk those who, who are of color or who have been able to go in, into homes and to be able to have whatever rights they, they have as a jurisdiction, but to be able to take that away from someone else and to, and to basically um, embed them into a system, um, like I said, that is modern day slavery, it's, it's just uh, appalling. And so you, you have to consider here where where the blame is placed and then on top of where the blame is placed how do we how can we fix it mm -hmm. how do we find solutions in order to fix something that has happened for a number of years and i just want to add to that point so for individuals that may be hearing us compare you know mass incarceration to slavery i just want them to know that it is supported so the 13th amendment abolishes slavery except for the punishment of a crime and when you think of individuals that we now have in our prison system those individuals have been you know, convicted of committing such crimes. And if individuals were to take the time to really research the condition these people live in and the things that they do, it is modern day slavery. Um, as my colleagues have mentioned, they've been stripped of, you know, their privileges, their right to vote, their right to have a voice, their right to, you know, exercise basic, you know, American or human principles and rights, right? But in addition to that, the conditions in which they live in these um, prisons um, some of us actually took the opportunity during this course to visit a prison in Texas, and we were actually able to witness there that these inmates at this institution still deal with cotton. They still work with cotton. So any individual that can tell me, you know, oh, that, that's ludicrous, like, you know, th this isn't slavery, there are definitely some very strong parallels to mass incarceration and slavery. Yeah, the symbolism there when, when we had the conversation about uh, y'all's trip to the prison that cotton was one of the things they wanted to leave with you. Um, I just, I mean, it speaks for itself, I think, at least from a symbolic standpoint. Um, and, I, and I think this is the, the, the argument you hear the students making is very similar to the one that is made in the new Jim Crow. I mean, that's really the argument that Michelle Alexander is making in her book on some of the contributing factors to mass incarceration from a systems perspective, and then what happens to uh, on the on the back end of that uh, of that system, which is what we've talked about with the felons not having really uh, having greatly limited rights after they leave the prison system. That's kind of a it's kind of permanent, and that's the piece that I think really um, is akin to slavery. And it's really uh, it sticks with them their whole life. It, it really it um, relegates them to second class citizens. They don't have access to the same basic rights. They don't have the right to vote in most states. Um, employment becomes a, a huge challenge for felons, and so in many ways it really is akin to to modern day slavery because the the types of options people have conditional on having interaction with the judicial system. And the, and the penal system is essentially bordering on zero often, um, which is its own form of slavery. Now, it's not perfectly akin to slavery um, in ways that, again, is laid out in the new Jim Crow, but the parallels are really hard to miss, um, and particularly the degree to which it much more dramatically affects 
communities of color um, committing the same types of crimes as community as as white communities. Um, the fact that the communities of color are the ones that are being policed more aggressively and that are spending more uh, a larger percentage of them are going to prison, getting the felon status, um, even for the same types of crimes that white people are committing, really kind of um, hints to or smells of or looks like slavery um, in a way that we haven't really come to terms with. And I think one of the reasons we, there's a lot of reasons uh, uh, given the American context that I think we're not willing to talk about these things as openly and as honestly as would allow us to heal. Um, But one big piece of this is colorblindness. And that's been hit uh, at several moments by a couple of you. Um, And it's also discussed in length in the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander and in 13th in in that documentary. Um, And it's this idea that um, we're, we're past this in America, right? It's this idea that, well, of course, the criminal justice system has to be colorblind. That's one of the basic aspects of it. And so if you commit a crime or if I commit a crime, we're both going to get the same treatment under the law. And any talk about race is hearkening back to pre-civil rights era, that we're, that we're past this. We've had a, a black president. We're in a post-racial era. But this evidence really speaks for itself. That this just isn't true right? That these communities are being decimated by these practices. People, when they leave the, all the way from underfunded schools and communities of color to harsh discipline to those students that are in those communities, to lack of economic opportunities, which cause them to end up uh, in underground markets and illegal markets, to those individuals being more policed heavily, which results in a more likelihood that they end up in prison. And a piece of that that we haven't talked to that we that we definitely need to come back to is the likelihood that a lot of those people are innocent, but that don't have the resources to provide for a decent attorney. They end up in prison for, for either crimes they did or didn't commit as part of a plea bargain. And then when they serve their time and are released, they don't, they don't have any opportunities because the school was underfunded. The, uh, they didn't have a lot of employment opportunities at that point. And then when they come out after being labeled a felon, there sure aren't any opportunities for these, for these folks. And so the idea that we have a colorblind system with how we apply these laws, while on the books um, you can make these laws seem colorblind in practice, the evidence is just clearly that they're not that they're implemented in ways that are more aggressive or more uh, uh, harsher punishments towards communities of color. So I think the colorblindness piece is a piece that we've really struggled to to really talk about, honestly, because in modern um, political conversations, this is something that people really don't want to touch. Um, okay, so we've kind of laid out here, I think, a little bit about the school to prison pipeline, a little bit about some of the mistreatment within the the U.S. prison system. One thing we haven't talked about yet that we talked about uh, in this class is um, solitary confinement. So maybe someone could tell me a little bit about what we learned about solitary confinement while individuals are in the U.S. prison system. How is that frequent and what's the evidence for this? I have a question. Before we get into the solitary confinement segment, I just want to... 
briefly um, refer to what we just talked about. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the plea bargaining and things of that nature. So it's also important for our audience to note that about 97% of federal cases result in, um, they end in plea bargaining and that figure is about 94% of cases on, on the state level. So you have a large portion of these individuals for various reasons um, that are deciding to, you know, just take a plea deal and end their case out of fear of potentially going to trial or like you mentioned, not being able to um, afford, you know, adequate defense. And then also we need to debunk a few myths about these individuals that are in jail that, you know, okay, well, people of color are there because they may, you know, be more criminal or they may commit more crimes. There's not a statistic in the world that you can fool me that will show that, you know, people of color are inherently more criminal, right? So when we look at things such as drugs, a lot of the, you know, reputable research, you know, produced by scholars, it states that, you know, communities of color are no more likely to commit these offenses or engage in drug use than their counterparts. It's just the way in which we police these things. Um, so I just wanted to kind of put that out there, but I'm definitely looking forward to the segment of this conversation about, um, solitary confinement because that is the reality of many individuals that make it on the other side of those bars. Yeah, I think actually uh, it's an important reminder throughout this conversation that the the way in which drugs are policed, it's really hard to make the argument given the wealth of evidence that they're not racialized. Uh, and I think uh, to keep referencing Michelle Alexander's book, I mean, she makes several good points of when you and from modern culture, when you say drug dealer, what is the picture that society has kind of given us? It's not the uh, early 20s white guy living in suburbia. It is kind of a, a, a large black man who's rough around the edges. And the evidence for who's selling drugs isn't that it's, again, any more likely for a black man to be selling uh, drugs than it is for a white man. But when we think about it, the, the way in which it's been presented uh, from a societal lens is we should automatically picture Eric in the room, right? Or we should picture Darren, not me, right? Just because of how these are these issues are discussed and presented in sort of major media outlets. And um, just to add to that, Dr. Bullock, I think that's kind of just what the media portrays. You know, you, you get to see some of these pictures day in and day out and when you're seeing a, a large black man who, like you said, is rough around the edges on a television screen selling drugs to kids or selling drugs to parents, selling drugs to their community, it makes you think that, oh, okay, well, obviously this is what's happening within these communities. This Because I see this on a TV screen, this is obviously what's been going on. Instead of taking the time out to actually research and to see what the, um, the, the root of the problem is, and I think we can kind of say the same, uh, not necessarily uh, linking media to solitary confinement, um, but just the fact of not doing enough research or not having enough um, knowledge to know that solitary confinement is harming rather than helping. Um, if we're allowing prisoners to be held in a cell in, in a tiny space uh, for more than 24 hours or um, even allowing them to be um, let out of that, that space for less than an hour, what is that doing to, their, to these prisoners' minds? How are we um, really being able to help them to be um, back into society to be able to live a normal life again. And um, ultimately, you would think that if we're punishing someone for, for what they did, if we're giving them the right amount of consequences that they deserve, then they've served their time, they've done everything that they're supposed to do, so now we want to get them back into society so they can become a regular citizen again. But instead, what we're doing is putting them into a system 
that is continuously bringing them back. And then on top of that, adding on to the problems that were already there to begin with. And so um, just just to talk about a few things for the solitary confinement, um, nearly one in five U.S. prisoners spent time in solitary confinement. Um, and, and this is kind of a, a double punishment and approximately 400,000 people each year have that experience. And so, um, you know, just to, to add on to what we've already uh, discussed, this is inhumane. The, the treatment that we are uh, uh, depict, uh, uh, the, the treatment rather that prison systems are inflicting upon um, at the end of the day, still citizens of this country uh, is, is disheartening. Yeah, and I think one anecdotal example that we covered in the class of this was the documentary Time, the Khalif Browder story, which our listeners may or may not be familiar with. But um, And here was someone who was accused of stealing a backpack. No evidence was really provided for it. And then he spent three years, was it three years? Yeah, three three years, years in prison. Um, and because he was fighting, he refused to plead out. And something like... 400 of those days, I'm not going to have the numbers exactly right off the top of my head, but about a third of that time was spent in solitary confinement. And that's just an anecdotal story, but then once he was released, his name was cleared. He was never found guilty of a crime after spending three years in prison. Um, it had devastating mental health Im impacts on him, so, so much so that upon his release, he wasn't released for particularly very long and tried to reintegrate and was unable to and eventually committed suicide. Right, and we talk about hearing voices. And so there's a lot of anecdotal evidence for long periods of time in solitary confinement being particularly harmful for, uh, for your mental health. Yeah, and uh, to speak on his story, he was 16 years old, which is a, which is a big thing when it happened. This is very recent, this says 2015. Mm -hmm. And it took for Barack Obama at the time to institute policies through the Justice Department to limit the use of solitary confinement to remove that usage on minors. So until 2015, solitary confinement was an acceptable punishment for minors. And a big issue there was the fact that he was a minor at the time, but because he had a previous record from being uh, influenced around a group of people, <clears throat> they automatically treated him as an adult and tried him as an adult uh, for for that crime, so and that's part of the school to prison pipelines we discussed earlier. The the rapid rate of sending these students into juvenile courts and integrating them early into the justice system, so that way when they are adults, they already have a strike against them. But Khalif's case, he was uh, severely tortured by inmates, by by uh, police officers, and. Uh, spent about a third of his time in solitary confinement. And the type of solitary confinement he was in is called administrative solitary confinement. Uh, it, there are three types. Typically, uh, one is for precautionary solitary confinement. So if they think that you are a danger to yourself or that the other inmates are a danger to you, they'll put you in solitary confinement. Uh, and then there's a disciplinary solitary confinement. if you, you were particularly a danger, you were particularly being, uh, if you were yeah, continuously being antagonistic, then that is a suitable punishment currently in our uh, law system. And uh, the third type is administrative, which uh, speaks to the greater discretion that criminal justice officials have the same way that 
police can choose how they are going to uh, look for crime in the areas they're going to focus on in finding crime. So can uh, prison administrators decide sometimes that they're just going to use uh, punishments at their disposal. And administrative uh, solitary confinement lasts on average for three months uh, without any kind of contesting or any kind of uh, protest from the prisoners. And these can be uh, consecutive. They don't have to have any justifiable reason. Uh, they can report it as however they want uh, from the minor from the most minor disciplinary infraction to uh, the most major. So that was something that affected him and that affects so many people. Uh, like Muriel said, one in five people will face some form of solitary confinement. And this is knowing that of that one in five, of that 20%, they could be there as much as high as uh, up to three months without anyone batting an eye or thinking about it as a, as a strange thing. Mm -hmm. and it's not even clear what that is accomplishing um, other than exacting some type of felt punishment. Um, I mean, three months, for example, is a, is a long, is a long time. I remember we talked uh, about uh, the UN's broad guidelines for solitary confinement. I'm going to forget the specifics, so if anyone has it pulled up, uh, but I think it was like anything over two weeks or 14 or 20 days was seen as, a, as, as significantly excessive. Um, and so, um, and a lot of this stuff, we won't cover in specific details moving forward because I want to shift the conversation just a little bit. But uh, for regular listeners of the podcast, these aren't new issues to you. We've covered the war on drugs. I mean, this is clearly a racialized element. Mass incarceration has clearly a uh, has clearly racialized elements to it, and I know throughout the class this has been very um, kind of frustrating that each piece of this appears to have clear uh, racial aspects to it, and then at the same time it's not something that we talk about broadly in um, in society, and it's one of the arguments that Michelle Alexander leaves us with at the end of her book, which is. We have to talk about these things. We have to talk about them openly and honestly, that these systems aren't colorblind. Um, they're, they are certainly uh, executed in ways that have serious racial disparities. And a point she makes, which I think is important to mention um, at this point, is it doesn't necessarily mean that there are a bunch of racists wandering around in the prisons and in the education system actively seeking to harm black and brown children. That may be the case. It may be that there is uh, people who harbor kind of active, harsh, uh, wanting to do harm to others of different races, but that doesn't even have to be true for the racialized elements of this to be true, right? All we really have to see is the ways in which blacks and whites commit certain crimes at the same level, rich and poor create certain crimes at the same level, but certain people end up in prison for them and certain don't. Certain people end up making it through in the school system, even with some infractions, some don't. And so the way in which the discretion, the way in which this is played out, clearly has these racialized elements, even if the people involved aren't, you know, notorious racist or people who are trying to actively harm certain students. We have what we know as implicit biases. Cognitive biases play a major role in the implementation of these things. Well, we have lots of psychological evidence 
that shows that um, people uh, uh, people view a picture of a black man or even a black child differently than a white man or a white child, even unbeknownst to them that they do it. And so one of the pieces I want to highlight in this conversation is um, the racialized elements, I think, are uh, there's not a there's not a way to dispute them. Um, the evidence is quite clear in the way in which we've gathered all the empirical evidence to support these. Again, for listeners, you can check out the 13th documentary. You can read the new Jim Crow. You can pull up the statistics yourself from the um, Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, so the evidence is there. What I want to talk a little bit about um, is what types of things might we suggest or that you have learned from this semester to combat this. I don't want to spend the whole time making the case. I think the case has been made. I think we've made the case here today. I think you have lots of places where you can make that case. But I want to move a little bit into the so what territory. And we've struggled with this in class this semester because the problems are so multifaceted. They're at different levels of the bureaucracy. They're at different levels of the legislation. And so we've often struggled to think about how to remedy some of these problems. And so I want to shift into that territory. Looks like Eric has something to share. So go ahead, sir. Yeah, this is a, a semi-proud uh, moment, I suppose, and in something government can actually do. Uh, my family happens to be uh, from Seattle, Washington, on my mom's side. And uh, Seattle just made an appeal that they are going to rescind the convictions uh, and redact all the convictions for the last 30 years for anyone arrested on a drug-related offense. So that type of restorative justice and actually clearing the records of those people is a way that government can actually perform. And as you can see, that was in King County, so that was a very, uh, that was a local government uh, because um, something we historically have seen from Michelle Alexander throughout this message that when it comes to these waves of justice, whether it's going to be harsher on crime or uh, with policies that are to improve education, uh, they fall short from a federal level down to local implementation. So to see a local government step up on the precedent of state government once, uh, once Washington made uh, marijuana usage uh, recreational, this is the first time that a local county has taken it upon themselves to say, well, since that's legal now, we're not just going to let people benefit now. We are going to set precedent on what was illegal and clear these people's records. Clearing people's records at that lower level still gives people access to uh, federal financial aid and government programs and all those things that are taken away from them by not only releasing them from prison, but actually um, removing their crimes or, or cleaning that from their records is a big step. And that's something that more places are going to do because most of prisons are filled right now with nonviolent offenders from drug usage or drug possession. So that's just a large demographic of people ranging from teenagers making mistakes to um, actual active dealers, but rarely is is that actually leading to the reduction in crime? It's proven that it's not. So seeing some restorative justice like that is is a good step forward and a practical step forward to see how the 
criminal justice system and the legal system can be used to the benefit of these uh, targeted minority groups. Yeah, so Eric uh, touches on a couple things there that I want to elaborate just briefly on as practical steps. And the first one that uh, you sort of took as a given in Seattle, and I, and I believe this is also played out in in, uh, in some places in California where they're doing some restorative justice. I can't remember exactly where, but the first piece of this, and again, to people who listen to the podcast, this isn't this isn't news to you. The way in which we our drug policies are kind of insane. Um, that was one of the very first topics I covered in the very first uh, season of Public Problems with um, David Bradford and talking about the amount of money and lives saved just moving marijuana to the medical marijuana. And we talked about the, the way in which we think about marijuana, for example, compared to other drugs that are legal or illegal. And any, not any, but lots of rational analyses bring you to the conclusion that marijuana is no more harmful than say alcohol or tobacco for sure. And so one piece of this is just removing the criminalized element of, of marijuana, for example, um, and making it non-criminal, decriminalizing it, and either making it available for medical use, decriminalizing it, or making it available to recreational use removes at least a large piece of this target for the war on drugs. And so one piece I think that I've talked about with the class um, and that we've talked about in other podcasts is the keeping marijuana schedule one drug doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so there's a way to just change the scheduling of that to decriminalize it completely. Um, that seemed to make sense given that we already have alcohol and tobacco as legal regulated dr drugs. So that's one. Second thing that Eric is talking about here that I also think is, is really important is in communities and in states and in cities when marijuana or cannabis has been decriminalized, not continuing to punish people who uh, are serving time under when it was criminal and to do use rest restorative justice techniques to remove that from those people's records. I think those are two clear, easy, maybe not politically easy, but two clear administrative, practical, legal steps to um, to addressing some of these problems. What else do we have from the from the team? Um, so I struggle with this question. Um, been struggling all semester with it. Um, but I think in general, um, I think what Eric mentioned really, really amazing. Um, but to Alexander's point, um, we have to get the public, uh, the public outcry on making sure that they want to change this thing. Um, and so she talks about in the last chapter of making sure that we have different stakeholders and people at the table to ensure that something like this is not created again. And I think that's the most important piece that I'm taking away from it. While we need policies and we need these different type of um, systems in place, we also need um, to ensure that we are aware um, that the system that we created has done a lot of damage and we do not want to see it again. And so I think in general, um, just making sure that while um, these different states and cities are changing these policies, that we as American citizens are aware and are um, are at a point where we do, do not want to see any community, not just the community of color, but any community um, being being um, being harmed in this way. So I think she makes a really good point there because we can date back to the civil rights movement. Um, everything was going on in the South and people were like, 
you know, going on with their lives. But until they saw the damage done um, in Selma, um, until they saw Montgomery, that's when the people were like, okay, we can't stand for this. And so I think we have to be very critical about what type of America that we want to see uh, for, future gen for future generations to come. I think it's a really good uh, point, Darren. And uh, it's one of the things that's been interesting about this class and why we wanted to share this with the podcast listeners is the just basic of raising awareness. I mean, all of you in this room are from communities of color. Um, and even the degree to which you were aware of the systematic uh, systemic factors influencing this very pretty uh pretty widely right i mean i think to some degree everyone was aware of some of the criminal justice issues and how they're directed at communities of color but the way in which it has become systematized and how it has changed from you know again to 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 use michelle alexander's book the new jim crow for slavery slavery was abolished something that come into play to keep control of communities of color was then the Jim Crow laws. And then as those were kind of ticked away and we had the civil rights era, the pushback uh, against communities of color really manifested itself in uh, in the war on drugs. It was another way of, um, of social control for communities of color. I, mean, I don't know how else to put it. And so just people being aware of these systematic structures that have been put into place in American society going back from pre-Civil War to Civil War to the Jim Crow to uh, the war on drugs, have in lots of ways played out as tools to keep communities of color uh, from fully entering mainstream society and and those uh, and communities of poverty as well, um, has really worked to, to keep those individuals from playing uh, roles as full functioning members in society. Um, other things that you've thought about or takeaways from the semester that can help address this host of challenges that we have? Sure. Um, for me, I think the points that were mentioned were really great. So not only can we like decriminalize certain drugs and also work with stakeholders to make sure that we don't see a new caste system form, but I think one of the additional things we can do is just encourage more people to take their blinders off. For all of our, you know, friends, colleagues, or whoever it may be that's like, you know, I don't see color, I don't see it. I need you to now see how that's a problem. And it's one that you may not intend to, you know, be doing. But if you don't see color, that means that you don't see who this is really impacting. And you may be saying, like, I don't see color from a really good space, and I appreciate that. But I need you to, you know, take those blinders off. I need you to see what's happening here and who it's impacting so that you can be, you know, concerned enough to join the forces of allies that want to, you know, combat this issue. Because we definitely need to um, have more support and more collective um, collaborative efforts here. I don't, I no longer, you know, want to fight with people about whether this is an issue, whether we should not, you know, I want people to really just join forces, see this issue for what it is, and how can we work together to, as Darren mentioned, create a system where, you know, no one has to go through this. So, yeah. go ahead, Mary. Sorry. Um, but no, I, I completely agree with Ashley, Darren, and Eric. I, I think that in order for us to have some uh, real, like, lasting fundamental changes, uh, we have to take our, our blockers off. We have to understand that colorblindness is a part of the problem. It's a part of the reason why some of the laws and policies that have been passed have been ordered to do so because people cannot uh, seem to recognize that 
racism and, and classism have been an important part of why some of these laws and, and policies have been put into place. Um, you know, I think that we have to uh, demilitarize our, our police task forces. I think that that's a part of the problem as well. Um, the fact that years ago police were able to, to be able to frisk and come into homes without having any real warrants, any real um, um, laws or policy that, that could have particularly been fair to those particular people who were affected by these, um, these uh, uh, certain actions um, is a part of the problem. I think that we have to also recognize that our justice system isn't necessarily always full of justice. I think that we have to know that um, some of the things that are happening around us are particularly um, in, uh, harmful to certain communities. Uh, being able to, to recognize also that the war on drugs has played a very important role in, in why so many of the numbers in prison system have, have risen. I mean, we went from maybe 300,000 people in prison maybe in 1972 to now over 200, uh, well, 2 million um, people in prison currently here now today. And so that's a problem. You see those numbers rising and you, you want to ask why. Why is there such an increase in this particular area of our society and what can we do about it to change it? And so I think that we have to recognize that this is a mental disorder as well. These are these are mental problems that we're dealing with um, emotionally, physically. But we need to have, I think, in my opinion, more resources for our citizens to be able to have some type of rehabilitation services for them um, to recognize that, yes, punishment may be necessary for uh, our uh, people who commit uh, crimes that are very serious or, um, uh, you know, very harmful to our society, but also recognizing that those that are not that serious, that are not that bad, that there should be something to offer to these people, and even if they are, there should be something to offer to these people to help them become better citizens, not to continue to punish. Yeah, I think um, all those are, are spot on. I mean, there are a few things come to my mind that we've talked about, too. Um, funding public defenders at a reasonable level so that public defenders don't have hundreds of cases at once. Rethinking about the rights we strip from felons when they have served their time. It seems much better to try to reintegrate them into society instead of putting factors in place that will increase recidivism, um, uh, in increase the reincarceration rate. Um, and uh, one basic one too is giving the schools in communities of color, the schools in, in poverty areas to have enough resources to invest in their students. You know, this is part of the problem we've talked about um, with the challenges of being on the ground, administrators on the ground teachers, is these, these schools don't have the funds often for uh, robust counseling services, don't have the services to hire the high quality teachers at a competitive rate. Um, you know, the, the school system dropped in missing all these uh, challenges the students are having at home. We watched Dropout Nation, for example, that covered some of the issues in Houston and just the immense challenges facing uh, those school systems. I mean, often the conversation recently in the U.S. has been about, well, should we equip schools with more guns, for example? And while, you know, we definitely want to make sure our students are safe, it, it also seems that more resources through community service officers or through uh, wraparound services for students or for just making sure we have the the testing the testing uh, services there for uh, catching disability for basic things that isn't um, isn't available in all of our schools and so one big piece of this too is allocating resources instead of spending all of this money 
on uh, holding people in cells for crimes that are nonviolent, those resources are very arguably well spent and better spent for societal returns on early education rather than devoting all of these uh, public resources towards just housing people who have committed nonviolent crimes. Um, okay, are there other takeaways or we're getting close on the hour mark. So I'd like to give each of you an opportunity if you would like to kind of have some closing thoughts about what you've learned from this. You know, it started out as a school to prison pipeline course. And as we delved into it, it turned into um, really a whole host of issues that are uh, harming poor communities and communities, in particular communities, uh, black communities and brown communities. Um, and we looked at early on about how young students aren't getting the resources they need in those communities. They're not identified for both gifted programs or disability services, um, how this feeds right into the prison system through harsh disciplinary measures, particularly for schools that don't have the resources to implement more nuanced disciplinary services uh, or dis disciplinary practices to what we actually do with our inmates while they're in prison, things like solitary confinement, things like innocent people ending up being held if they won't plead uh, plead out, to how we reintegrate people who have been held in prison back into society and what types of rights we give them, um, and also issues of policing and uh, the militarization of policing forces. There's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff here that has created a kind of a whole to use Michelle Alexander's language, a whole kind of racial caste system. Um, so is there anything else you'd like to leave the listeners with kind of in, in parting as we're doing our own public uh, information effort? Okay. Um, I think for me, this was a moment, just taking this class and being able to express ourselves in a way that uh, we can learn from one another. This is an opportunity for me to wake up to um, ultimately like recognize what's, what's happening around me um, to become a little more knowledgeable about the policies that affect it and um, also to be i think a little more um, aware of the political leaders that i um, that i support i think that uh, we have to we have to kind of put some of the responsibility on ourselves but also rely that responsibility uh, to those who who have the authority and the power to change it, um, we should hold them accountable. This this is a this is a human human rights movement that we need to be able to um, enact and and be a part of. Um, you know, although this is affecting communities of colors, we we need our counterparts, our white counterparts. We need our other peers to to join in on this. We need to be able to come together as a unit to restore the um, the. Uh, racial caste system, the the uh, slavery from, you know, years and years ago, the decades of um, unfair and unjust uh, uh, policies and laws that have been passed. I think in order to be able to change uh, what we've seen in the past, uh, presently, we all need to be here to be able to come together to uh, make our future better. Um, and so for me, again, like this was just an opportunity to become more knowledgeable, to learn what's going on around me. Um, but to also be able to apply the solutions that we've discussed, uh, the facts that we've been able to research, and um, um, the valuable lessons that we've gained from this class. Uh, I think for me, it has just been the opportunity to 
uh, lead up to this podcast and learn all of this information and share this, uh, not with the scholarly community, not with those people who have the privilege of, of time to look into all of this material and to, to know all of these issues in depth. I know for, uh, for myself, you know, there's more uh, people living through you, so to speak. There's that example for the community and there's uh, a bit of responsibility that comes with that. Oftentimes it can, it can be that uh, you make it out, you are uh, the exception to these rules and these laws and these policies that we're that we're talking about and sometimes not the excuse me sometimes not the exception sometimes uh, you were directly affected by uh, some of these disciplinary policies and some of these uh legal policies sometimes you're standing outside of your house and you're getting approached by police officers and yet you're uh, you know, right on the cusp of getting a getting a master's degree and for all of us that uh, is coming soon. Uh, you only got a year left, Mary. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so it just, there's a bigger responsibility to it. There's to have that opportunity to get this level of information. Uh, it's only so valuable as you're able to, to spread that back out and um, hopefully educate others um, everyone's not going to get a master's degree and everyone's not going to go on to get a PhD. So it's, it's very important to, to actually share knowledge because what we get throughout the K through 12 education system, uh, it's just, sometimes it's only a fraction of the information. Uh, most of the time it's a fiction of the fraction of information that we're getting. So, uh, just to have the opportunity to share some real information and provide people with some sources and some resources uh, was a big thing for me for the semester. Excellent. I think for me, it was just soaking in the information to my core so that I can share this information with other people. It made me want to go into in like a field that has to do with education, such as being a teacher, counselor, or something of that nature. It encouraged me to want to try to change something, not just keep this information to myself. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, one of my career paths hopefully will be um, maybe in the teaching field to try to educate these students that come from lower income areas that there's more to life than, you know, maybe a mis something that happened to their father, or somebody that they looked up to, maybe they went to prison, but there's more to life than, um, more, than more to life than these uh, living in this system um, of poverty or living in this system of mass incarceration um, and it, I think, you know, a lot of the times, our, as we discuss, our education system is um, not the best. And um, I want to, you know, encourage people and students that, you know, they can get a master's degree and they can get a Ph.D. Um, and there's, you know, there's this hope at the end of the tunnel and you don't have to sit, settle for, you know, being in the juvenile justice system or whatever is happening to them currently. Yeah, um, to Eric's point, the responsibility, I was just smiling the entire way. Um, but no, in general, like I, I owe a responsibility back to all of the people in my family and also people that look, that may look up to me or look to me as an example. Um, I, I think we learned so much information um, and I've, 
I was reading the literature. Sometimes I used to be upset with the literature with myself of not knowing certain things. And so I think in general, I owe it back um, to little black boys um, that come behind me to ensure that they are aware of this information um, and that they can be more equipped more than I uh, more than I was. So in general, um, a very uh, humbling experience for me. Um, someone that thought that they were, um, that they knew all of this material, but I think in general, I just owe it back. Um, and then just also for our society, I think a bigger question um, needs to be asked of, are we okay with spending, um, spending money on the front end with our schools or spending it on the back end with our prison system. And so that question had like really um, had me thinking for the last couple of weeks, but I, I just want us to be open and honest about what has happened and what can we do to ensure um, that future generations are well equipped to not go through this anymore. I think the biggest takeaway for me um, was the fact that Michelle Alexander was able to highlight how the system in fact has functioned under color blindness for so long. Um, so that allowed me to be able to be more patient with people um, because having studied criminal justice and having experienced a lot of this stuff personally either through um, seeing it directly impact people that I care about. Coming into it, I knew a lot of this information, but I definitely did learn a lot. The most important piece was that how some people really do, in fact, see it from a colorblind lens. So I'm now, again, as I said, more just patient with conversations with those individuals because I see how, you know, you can think that, you know, this wasn't as big of a monster as it truly is. Um, so I think that's really important moving forward because by me being patient on my end, if I can just have more conversations and actual dialogue with people instead of yelling at them coming from a place of passion and anger, um, hopefully that can unite some forces so that we can actually get things done. And just to all of the listeners out there who may not be as familiar with this issue, and even those listeners that still, you know, want to deny that this exists because they may have not experienced it, um, I just want to leave you guys with a few resources and just some of the things that we um, went through in this course that really helped me. So as Dr. Um, Bullock mentioned, um, Michelle Alexander, The New Dream Crow, that was a phenomenal read. Um, just Mercy, that's one that Darren raised about all of the time that basically captures the story of so many people that were truly innocent that have been um, caught up into the criminal justice system, as well as a few documentaries such as Dropout Nation, as well as um, 13th. Um, yeah, I can't leave 13th out. Um, I think that if you just kind of start there, that'll kind of build up this foundation of what takes place in these schools of color, the issues that some of these families deal with, and then how with 13, how systemically, you know, these things play out. And then additionally, the literature to, to support, which will just give you more of the factual um, facts behind some of these things and more case-based scenarios. So yeah, I think if we can just walk away from this with not only being empowered by the knowledge, but having that will to now want to go out and engage with more people, I think that we have done our um, cause. So thank you, Dr. Bullock. Oh, you're each quite welcome. I the this has been a, a very enjoyable discussion for me an enjoyable class um i would echo the students in the room that one one reason we do these podcasts and one reason why i think it's so important is to move us from a place where we yell at one another out of our passion and have open and honest conversations and so 
at a minimum, I, uh, it's our hope in the room that this leads to more productive dialogue. We've tried to present this case the best we can, given you resources to consider and think about. And we all strongly believe these are some real pressing public problems, some pressing public challenges we have as a society. And so check out these resources, check out the information for yourself, see what you can find. And uh, thanks for following along on another episode. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Season 2 of the Public Problems Podcast. If you would like to help support this podcast, you can do so by sharing the episodes with your friends, family, students, and liking our page and following along as we do live events. You can also support the Public Problems Podcast financially by subscribing to the podcast at justinbullock.org slash subscribe or by clicking the Shop Now button on our Facebook page. Here you can pick any monthly subscription or single donation amount that you'd like to contribute. Any support is greatly appreciated. I very much believe in this podcast and its content and hope to make it more visible and have more time to spend on it in the future. Thank you very much.